of a trans woman who's played by a, a cis man. So that's kind of, there's been a lot of uh, fear, maybe that's the right word, uh, anger about that, about casting a, casting a cis person in a trans role when there are so many trans actors out there. And you have that Bryn, for instance, who was a trans actress, actor. I just like the term actor for everybody. Um, and this idea that somehow there's like not that talent pool out there and you have to like somehow cast cis folks in trans roles is kind of gross. Anyway, so I got one in the mail and I was like, ugh, like doing my best to try and try to avoid this film. And, you know, I've heard that Eddie Redmayne does a, a good job and it's a, it's a good, it's well done or whatever. I've also read critiques of it. Uh, this idea, it's like, it's kind of inescapable. The transphobia is really inescapable. There's not one day I wake up and go through the world where I don't think about either being trans or just about the gender binary and the the boxes that people put each other into and the boxes that one kind of has to fall into. And even just with uh, misogyny as well, how that's so huge. And even though it's not necessarily directed at me anymore, it's still all around. It's everywhere. Oh, so thinking about uh, that as well. Uh, it was also um, Martin Luther King Day on Monday, and there was a there's there was like 96 hours of actions in in the Bay Area, and there was a march that happened, started off in downtown um, Oakland by Oscar Grant Plaza, and then went all the way to Emeryville. It was about a four mile march, and uh, there were thousands of people there, and it was it was great to see so many folks out and about. And uh, afterwards, as the march uh, winded down in, in Emeryville by Shell Mound, which is like a lonely, you know, burial land, which is now a mall because America, uh, they had, uh, there were a few speakers, folks who have lost family members to police violence. And they were um, just so striking in their, in their words. And it was so powerful and, and painful to, to hear that and just imagining what that's like to be a, have a, a, a constant to have to, to deal with that, to be afraid of law enforcement and then to have to, to deal with losing loved ones and then to also feel like you're being silenced. So that was, um, that was intense. And they, um, on, they also had, uh, some folks, uh, blocked the, the Bay bridge as well. And there are people who were, uh, online, uh, I'm sure other places were many people who were supportive, and then there are some folks who were not so supportive. And th- I mean, the idea is if you are that upset about uh, traffic, imagine how upset you'd be if you had members of your family taken from you by law enforcement. So if you put that anger elsewhere, you know, people wouldn't be protesting if there was nothing to protest about, but there is. So it's just something to think about. So I think that that's a pretty good uh, wind-up. Well, I'll talk a little bit more. I was, um, so I was pet-sitting for some friends of mine from New York um, whom I met. Uh, yeah, I met them in New York, and they, they moved out to the Big Island, and uh, they flew me out there, which was really generous and awesome of them. And so I spent the first, like, I saw them, and then the week and a half after that was me and two cats I used to sit for and a dog and had a lot of alone time, which was nice. And I drove for the first time in over 10 years, which is a big deal. And I also have been taking a break from pot for a little bit. I've been doing it here and there, but definitely taking a break, which has been nice as well. So kind of clearing my head a little bit. And then they came back and we spent some time together, which was wonderful. And they're just great people who really uh, talk about unconditional love. Just that's, that's who they are. And that was great. And I took a theta healing class, which was awesome. So now I'm a theta healer. That's neat. 
and uh, just saw a lot of great parts of the island, and it was just really beautiful, and it felt like it's the next best thing to, to getting out of the country in a way. It, it felt like I was in a new new place. Even though I'd been to the, the big island before, it felt like I was really just in a totally different uh, headspace. I saw one police officer. I was there for 20 days. I saw one police officer there the entire time, and that was just someone who had pulled someone over on the side of the road. So I'd say... As opposed to uh, the next place I went after that was uh, L.A. to visit some friends and had a really good time there. And there I saw quite a few police officers and, and heard quite a few police sirens. And uh, so it was just a very different, you know, when you're surrounded by, by police all the time, it definitely, I'm one of those folks who's more skeptical of law enforcement and distrustful of law enforcement, um, especially given some of it's my own experience and given a lot of a lot of my friends' experiences, I'm more skeptical than anything of it. And how much more relaxed I felt to be in a place where they weren't around and there wasn't that noise pollution and there's this kind of tension that I feel when I'm around uh, officers and I think a lot of other folks do as well and to be, not be around that felt like a huge relief. So that was definitely something to consider. Oh, so opened up the show with with, uh, with with David Bowie, and there have been quite a few things. So I've got, I was talking about this yesterday. There's, you know, I, I know David Bowie influenced a lot of people, and especially people in the, in the queer, whatever word you want to use to describe. I know folks don't like the word queer. But if we're going to argue about words, then I'll never say anything. Uh, within the whatever community, whatever you want to say, um, inspired a lot of people to feel like they could be themselves, etc. And there's also just a lot of pushback in terms of his some of his behavior earlier on uh, with groupies who were like 13, and that's a pretty common, well-known fact. Not just one, but like a lot of you know underage folks, which is kind of sketchy. And uh, a few other things that he's done in, in his career. He's had a very prolific career, certainly. Uh, I think it's definitely important to acknowledge, though, that uh, some of his, his stuff wasn't uh, his personal behavior uh, shouldn't be overlooked, necessarily. And also wanted to mention, and I'll be playing some later, uh, Klaus Nomi, who was a German opera singer who really influenced Bowie. And there's a great documentary called The Nomi Song, and it talks about Klaus's life. And he came to New York, and he was kind of described as an alien and had an incredible uh, incredible voice and was just a very interesting dresser. And you can see him, I think the most popular uh, way one would have seen him was that he was a backup singer for David Bowie when he was on Saturday Night Live, like in the late 70s. And there's quite, uh, they make a pretty strong case that Bowie took a lot of his ideas kind of from Klaus Nomi in terms of his appearance and all these other things. And, and Klaus Nomi is not very well known. And he, he died of AIDS in 1983. So here's someone who didn't get the kind of recognition that he definitely deserved. And it's interesting. I think it's also just important to recognize that, you know, of course, as artists, we are all influenced by one another. And either steal or take or whatever you want to do, whatever you want to call it, ideas from one another and present it as our own or uh, use it to shape our own performances. And uh, so I'll be playing a lot of Klaus Nomi later, and I want to thank my friend Austin for introducing me to him because I hadn't heard of him at all. And it's it's like a lot of these things where David was so David Bowie was so widely known and widely recognized, and people say, "Were well, you really upset?" And I actually heard about it. I was at an uh, IO theater in in LA, and I was in a group of people, so it felt 
it was like the kind of the best case scenario in a way to hear about things same similar with with robin williams i heard about him actually right outside of here at mutiny radio uh a friend a fellow dj told me about it and i kind of prefer to be told about these things uh however like you know i understand celebrity is a whole other issue in itself because they're just they're, they're people and there's a whole lot of other people who are dying every day that's not necessarily being discussed although i try to discuss it on the show um i like it when a person tells me it's it's there's that kind of connection i'd rather hear about it from a person um than read it online and have to experience it either on my own or you know just not know what to do exactly with whatever feelings are coming up. So I was with a whole group of people and people were really upset about it. And I always thought, you know, I liked David Bowie. I had a partner once who was like really, really into him. And I was like, okay. And my feeling about it was that, yes, he influenced a lot of people. I was a big Lou Reed fan and he worked with Lou Reed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, he was always really, you know, recognized for, for his work. So there is not, um, I don't feel like I had as much sadness around it maybe as um, some other folks uh, do or did. And uh, the night that I heard, I was I decided I was staying with a friend in West Hollywood, so I was like walking back, which is it's a, it was like a long, maybe it's like a, somewhere between like a mile and two mile walk. It was like late, like one or two in the morning, which I like to do, just long walks whenever. And I ended up walking on Hollywood Boulevard and I saw a group of people and I ended up just happened to walk by his, his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So it was one of those, it was a interesting i made that decision deciding to walk instead of getting a ride or finding other means um and so a lot of folks had gathered and people put candles around it and flowers and by the time i had gone you know people came people these these two folks drove from like riverside and they um threw like glitter on his star and there was a guy who was uh playing a person i'm going to try to talk about without gender we'll see how far that goes uh was playing he had brought like a little ipod speaker and was just playing his music and was sitting on the sidewalk and a lot of folks had gathered around and that was really lovely and i stayed for a while and at one point there's this guy in a suit like a really fancy suit who was like walking down the street like in a hurry and um, i had my own bias my, my own bias i was like oh this guy is not going to stop he's just going to like walk right by he might not even notice that people are gathered here at all and not only did he stop, but then he was like talking to people and he just stayed for a while. And I was like, that certainly shows me with my own preconceived notions or maybe, I don't know, San Francisco has kind of hardened me in a way where uh, it feels like there's not as much uh, interaction with, with folks, you know, walking by on the street, certainly. Um, so it was nice to see folks gather and uh, in that in that way. So... <sighs> Yeah, that that was the that was the past month or so in a nutshell. That that leaves out quite a bit. So we'll be getting to some more stories, and there's some exciting stories coming out here of San Francisco at 1:30 p.m. today. There's going to be some corruption charges that are going to be announced. So thankfully, we'll still be on the on the air at that time. So we'll be checking in and seeing who's uh, who's in trouble. Let's put it that way: who in a position of authority is in trouble. And I, I try not to like divide people between good and bad, although, because we're all, all complex beings, certainly. Uh, I do like it when folks in positions of authority who have did not have who have acted upon hurting people and whatever, whether it's signing legislation or whatever, when they are held accountable. And I don't necessarily believe in the justice system because it's not necessarily just. I, I do believe, though, that uh, any way to stop folks from causing more harm is a good thing. So at 1.30 p.m., We'll we'll hear about that. So that should be that should be fascinating. 
<sighs> so I'm going to get started. I'm going to play some more music before we get started with the stories. And uh, so as promised, I'll play some Klaus Nomi. So he has an album called called Klaus uh, <laughs> Nomi. And I think one of the best known songs is uh, uh, Lightning Strikes, which you might be familiar with. Uh, and his version's pretty pretty awesome. Enough to learn the makings of a man. Listen to me, baby, it's time to settle down. Am I asking too much for you to stick around? Every boy wants a girl he can trust to the very end. Baby, that's you. Won't you stay? But till then, when I see lips begging to be kissed, I can't stop. Klaus Nomi with Lightning Strikes again, and we'll hear more from him later on in the show. So first up, I'm going to read a story from The Intercept. Intercept is a good place to find independent news coverage, and I dig a lot of their stories. So this is an article written by uh, Zaid Jelani, and the title is Martin Luther King Jr. Celebrations Overlook His Critiques of Capitalism and Militarism. 
Uh, America's celebrations of Martin Luther King Jr. typically focus on his civil rights activism, the nonviolent actions that led to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The last few years of King's life, by contrast, are generally overlooked. When he was assassinated in 1968, King was in the midst of waging a radical campaign against economic inequality and poverty while protesting vigorously against the Vietnam War. This was a campaign whose intellectual roots were found in a younger king who grew uneasy with the excesses of capitalism around him, even as he focused on civil rights issues in the summer of 1952. He wrote a letter detailing these concerns to Coretta Scott, whom he began dating earlier in the spring. In that letter, he concluded that capitalism has outlived its usefulness. And he writes, I imagine you already know that I am much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic, and yet I am not so opposed to capitalism that I have failed to see its relative merits. It started out with a noble and high motive, uh, viz. to block the trade monopolies of nobles, but like most human systems, it falls victim to the very thing it was revolting against. So today, capitalism has outlived its usefulness. It has brought about a system that takes necessities from the masses to give luxuries to, uh, luxuries to the classes. Government officials tracked his growing radicalism and feared it. King is so hot these days that it looks like Mark's coming to the White House, complained President John F. Kennedy in 1963 as King was ramping up his nonviolence campaign in the South. He authored his brother, attorney, he authorized his brother, attorney General Bobby Kennedy, to wiretap King and his associates. In 1966, King told staff at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference that there must be a better distribution of wealth and maybe America must move toward a democratic socialism. Call it what you may call it. Uh, call it, call it what you may, call it democracy, or call it democratic socialization, socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all of God's children. King was also increasingly disturbed by the war in Vietnam, and he would raise the issue privately with President Lyndon Johnson in their White House calls and meetings. In April 1967, King gave a speech at Riverside Church in New York City, where he called the U.S. government the greatest purveyor violence uh, in the world and denounced napalm bombings and the propping up of a puppet government in South Vietnam. The establishment responded bitterly to King's speech. The New York Times editorial board blasted King for linking the war in Vietnam to the struggles of civil rights and poverty uh, alleviation in the United States, saying it was too uh, facile a connection and that he was doing a disservice to both causes. It concluded that there are no simple answers to the war in Vietnam or to racial injustice in this country. The Washington Post editorial board said King had diminished his usefulness to the, his cause, his country, and his people. Uh, in all 168 newspapers, uh, in all 168 newspapers denounced him the next day. President Johnson immediately terminated his relationship with King. What is? Oh gosh, I can't. Oh god, damn, I can't. Fucking LPJ. I'm not even gonna read his quote. I'm not gonna read it. Oh, Jesus. Oh, fucking asshole. Oh. All right. 
Then LBJ says, uh, we gave him the Civil Rights Act of 1964. We gave him the Voting Rights Act of 1965. <coughs> we gave him the War on Poverty. What more does he want? Um, and this is me censoring what he said, because I can't even, f I'm not even gonna repeat what he said. Asshole. Anyway, uh, henceforth, King would be on would be on the outside in uh, a picket line shouting peace chants through the wrought iron gates, noted historian Harvard uh, uh, Sitkoff. A Harris poll con conducted after King's Vietnam speech found that only 25% of even African Americans supported him in his anti-war turn. Only 9% of the public at large agreed with his objections to the war. <coughs> hmm. Despite the intense backlash from elites and the public, King continued to soldier on in 1967. He gave Christmas Eve a sermon to his congregation at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, in which he assailed not just African American, not just American capitalism, but the system of global markets that was failing to provide for the world's poor. I started thinking about the fact that right here in our country, we spend millions of dollars every day um, to store surplus food, he preached. And I said to myself, I know where we can store that food free of charge, in the wrinkled stomachs of the millions of God's children in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and even in our own nation who go to bed hungry at night. During his civil rights campaign, King had also been organizing workers, for example. He campaigned against the Oklahoma right to work referendum and warned that the increased economic uh, competition between whites and blacks would undermine civil rights. <coughs> Calling instead for um, calling instead for a grand alliance between working class, whites, and blacks. With the Poor People's Campaign launched in 1968, King escalated this campaign aimed at providing good jobs, housing, and a decent standard of living to all Americans. Decades before, American protesters took to the streets of New York City and other locales to occupy space and um, to protest inequality, King protested a massive uh, pr proposed a massive tent encampment in Washington, D.C. to demand action on poverty. Uh, here's an Associated Press article about the campaign and the link uh, in the page they provide a uh, link to the article. Uh, he never saw it come to fruition. He was assassinated that year while organizing striking Memphis sanitation workers. Southern Christian Leadership Con Conference President uh, Ralph Abernathy and Coretta Scott King followed through with the plan setting up tents and shacks on the mall in Washington, D.C., deemed Resurrection City. This encampment lasted a month before the Department of Interior forced it to close down. King's approval of ratings are much higher decades after his death than they were during his life. By 1987, 76% of Americans held a favorable view of the activist leader. But Many are taught a simplified version of his life, focusing on only one of the three dimensions that defined him. During the Vietnam speech that turned the establishment against him, King rallied against the giant 
triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism. Huh. So that just says it right there and how people are kind of glorified a bit. Um, not even, not necessarily even just, just glorified, but while people are actively challenging the system, the system doesn't want to listen. People in power don't want to listen. And I apologize for having to censor myself. I try not to censor myself. I just can't I, I read any more ha hateful uh, wordage. I just can't do it. Um, coming from LBJ, who was the president. Uh, I'm thinking now about how activists are sometimes, well, often challenged and uh, even arrested and threatened um, for doing what is the best for, you know, when they're actually standing up for what would be the best for everybody. And I think things haven't really changed too much. However, you know, once, once folks die, then of course people can say, oh, they were doing this, but kind of really just like watering down what the folks were standing up for, especially if it challenges people in power's their own beliefs. Speaking of people in power and their own beliefs, uh, I'm going to hop to the next story. And my voice is not, uh, not, I haven't been doing this for a while, so my voice is a little bit scratchy, so I apologize. And by next week, maybe it'll be a little bit better. But uh, there's some folks out there who are really into, oh, uh, really into Hillary Clinton. And I'm all for, if we have to have leaders, I'm all for female leaders. However, not an oligarchy, not for people who are in bed with the big banks and war profiteers. I just can't. Uh, I just, nope. Sorry, that's uh, it's not enough. So I'm going to read this story, also from The Intercept, about, uh, and also she's been attacking Bernie Sanders, and it's like, um, I, I get that it's a political, that it's a, it doesn't have to be a competition, though. And if it's like, if we could all kind of work together, you know, if they could all work together instead of trying to, like, if you really w cared about the American people, you would try to work with your 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 competitors or your colleagues and try to make things better and find what you can't agree on instead of uh, talking shit about people. Uh, who uh, And Bernie Sanders has a lot of... Uh, he's... Uh, some, for some of my friends, he's not radical enough. <laughs> and uh, a lot of folks really dig what he has to say and uh, telling the truth and challenging the big banks, for instance. There's other issues, of course. It's, again, going back to the whole idea of, you know, David Bowie and being complex and doing a lot of good work, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a fabulous person all the time or that uh, one agrees with you with, with all of your statements and actions. So uh, I'm going to read this. This is also from The Interceptedly written by Lee Fang. Uh, half the foreign policy experts signing Clinton's anti-Sanders letter have ties to military contractors. So this is what a lot of us have been saying for, for uh, a while, uh, that we, we don't want to give them any more power, any of the military contractors any more power. Uh, Hillary, Hillary Clinton's campaign released a letter this week in which... Uh, ten foreign policy experts criticized her opponent, Bernie Sanders, call for closer engagement with Iran and said Sanders had not thought through these crucial national security issues that can have profound consequences for our security. The missive from the Clinton campaign was covered widely in the press, but what wasn't disclosed in the coverage is that fully half of the former State Department officials and ambassadors who signed the letter and who are now backing Clinton are now enmeshed in the military contracting establishment, which has benefited tremendously from escalating violence around the world, particularly in the Middle East. Here are some of the letter's signatories, current employment positions that were not disclosed in this reporting of the letter. 
Former Assistant Defense Secretary uh, Derek Cholet, former Pentagon and CIA Chief of Staff Jeremy Rash. Jeremy Bash, okay. Then former Deputy National Security Advisor Julianne Smith are now employed by the consulting firm Beacon Global Strategies, a firm we profiled last year. Beacon Global Strategies staff advises both Clinton and Republican candidate for president, including Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. The firm makes money by providing advice to clientele that is primarily military contractors. Beacon Global Strategies, however, has refused to to disclose the identity of its clients. Former Undersecretary of State Nicholas Burns is a senior counselor at the Cohn Group, a consulting firm founded by former Defense Secretary William Cohn. The firm assists aerospace and defense firms on policy, business development, and transactions, including deals in the U.S., Turkey, Israel, and the Middle East. Former Undersecretary of Defense Jim Miller is an advisory board member to Endgame Systems, a startup that has been called the Block the Blackwater of Hacking. Miller is also on the board of BEI Precision Systems in Space, a military contractor. So it's good to know who's who's working with whom. Uh, so Pam just came in with uh, there's a calendar of action in solidarity with trans prisoners. Very cool. And this is Jan for January 22nd. Uh, no walls but Stonewall, Queers Bash Back, Non Servium, uh, Solidarity Forever. Uh, they won't stop. They won't stop hurting us until we make them uh, Queers Against Prison. That's totally awesome. All right, and this is a benefit show for TG. Uh, TGIJF and um, bands include uh, B, uh, SBSM, Butana, and Sorry Not Sorry, and go to uh, transprisoners.net. And this is at El Rio. We all know El Rio. It's a 3150 uh, mission. And this is Friday. This is today. Uh, ooh, 6 p.m. Okay, cool. And it's 21 and over. It's $5. 3156 missions where El Rio's at and go to transprisoners.net. Well, I will be there. Awesome. Thank you, Pam. Um, so we're going to play another song uh, from Klaus Nomi, and then we'll be back with some more stories here. And I think folks will recognize uh, this one as well. <laughs>
welcome back. Ah, oh, that was Klaus Nomi with You Don't Own Me. We'll be hearing more, a few more songs uh, from Klaus by the end of the show. Uh, so if you're feeling good because that song, that song makes me feel good, here's a story to make you feel bad. Not necessarily make you feel bad. Uh, hopefully you'll be paying, you've been paying attention uh, in the news. And this now it's getting more and more traction. And this story comes out, this is like from December, but now there's been more, at least... Uh, there have been more stories published about this, more of an outcry. This is from U.S. Uncut, and this article is written by uh, Lacey McLaughlin. And uh, children in Flint, Michigan, have so much lead in their blood, state of emergency just to clear. And this came out December 15th, so this was a while ago. This is a month ago. Oh, okay, earlier this fall, uh, a routine checkup reviewed a one-year-old girl in Flint, Michigan, had elevated levels of lead in her bloodstream. The child, who was given the pseudonym Michaela, Michaela in a recent study by the Hurley Medical Center in Flint, is one of the hundreds of children who have tested positive for lead poisoning in the city. Flint Mayor Karen Weaver declared a state of emergency Monday evening over the public health crisis. Lead poisoning disproportionately impacts low-income children like Michaela. Michaela lives with her single mother and two other older siblings in, on the west side of town. Every day, the child's mother mixes powdered milk from the federal government's nutritional assistance program with warm tap water. It can be years before lead poisoning shows the extent of its damage, but consequences can result in learning disabilities, behavioral issues, as well as damaged organs and compromised immune systems. The study estimates uh, $3.19 to $4.85 billion in Michigan's economic losses will result from lead exposure. The number of infants and children with above-average levels of lead in their system nearly doubled since the city stopped using the Detroit water system and moved to the Flint River in 2014, according to the study. Last month, parents of children who may have been affected permanently filed a class-action lawsuit against the federal government. Mayor Weaver has made repeated pleas to state and federal officials over the last several months to voice concerns about the high content of lead in the city's drinking water. During a press conference in September, Weaver said that there had been a posture of denial that city officials had adopted regarding the contamination. It's unfathomable that highly trained, well-paid city administrators who are sworn in to uphold public trust respond to what is clearly a well-documented public health threat in such a callous, casual manner, she said. Weaver is asking the county to call a special meeting today to take action and is asking for support from the federal government. And moving along from there, there's another story um, done with that as well from uh, NPR, and this is a more recent take on it, and this is from uh, January 22nd, and it's written by Merrick Kennedy. Uh, it's again from NPR. Flint Mayor says, who a lot of folks are asking to resign, politics and profit perpetuated lead-tainted water crisis. Uh and that was, um, no, sorry, not the Flint mayor, the governor of Michigan, uh, Snyder, Rich Snyder. A lot of people are calling for Rich Snyder to resign. Okay, uh, how high lead levels in Flint, Michigan's water has led President Obama to declare a state of emergency as criticism mounts that the problem has not been handled promptly. The people weren't put first. The health of the people was not put before profit and money, 
Flint Mayor Karen Weaver says in an interview with Ari Shapiro on All Things Considered. The problem started when Flint switched its water source to the Flint River in April 2014. The new supply was harder water, which corroded the city's pipes and leached lead into the tap water. Residents quickly started complaining about the water. General Motors stopped using it in uh, October 2014 because it was corroding machinery. Oh, okay. Even though the city switched back to its original supply in October 2015, the damaged pipes continue to contaminate the water. Weaver says Flint residents don't know when the city's water will be safe to drink again, even though they're still paying for it. The lead levels and complaints about how the problem is being handled have led to the resignation Thursday of Susan Hedman, the regional director of the Environmental Protection Agency. Also Thursday, the head of the EPA issued an emergency order directing state and city officials to take actions to protect public health. President Obama's declaration of a state of emergency last week freed up $5 million in federal aid for the city. Weaver was not in office when this started. She was elected in November after vowing in address the uh, after vowing to address the city's water problems. And as Michigan Radio's Lindsay Smith reports, one of the first things she did was to declare an emergency in the city. Flint residents have consistently voiced frustration over the time it has taken for officials to acknowledge this crisis and respond to it. Flint is a majorly is a majority black city and 40% of people live below the poverty line. Weaver tells Ari that she thinks race and poverty had a lot to do with the response. Weaver met the president and some of his senior advisors earlier this week to discuss Flint's crisis. He has pledged to do everything that he can at this uh, at the federal level and has in fact sent people to Flint to get started on this past the FEMA assistance that has already been in place. One of the things he stressed is that he was going to be meeting with the governor the very next day because the state has such a big role to play in this and we know the state has money. They have a rainy day fund, a surplus between 500 and $600 million, and Flint needs to be the priority for receiving those funds. Uh, on And then on 274 pages of emails about Flint released by Michigan Governor Rick Snyder. Snyder made the emails public on Wednesday following widespread criticism. He said he was releasing them so that you have answers to your questions about what we've done and what we're doing to make this right for the families of Flint. Here's what Weaver had to say. I haven't seen what's in those emails, but I will tell you this. It's something that he needed to do because one of the issues we've been dealing with is broken trust. And we've been kept in the dark regarding some information regarding our water. We've been given misinformation about the water, and the only way the governor can, if he can, rebuild trust is to start doing that. So it's, it's a start for him, I suppose. Uh, and uh, on calls for Snyder to resign. You know what? I'm glad those high-profile figures are out there, and they're putting the pressure on the governor and holding him accountable for some things. What I've said is, we have an investigation going on, and I can't wait uh, to hear the results of that investigation, because everybody 
should be held accountable. Uh, everybody that should be held accountable needs to be held accountable. We want to know uh, who knew, um, who knew what, and when they knew it. And that's from the governor, all the way down to it if it includes local officials. We want everyone to be held accountable, and if it means they have to be removed, so be it. And then getting down to Flint's future, uh, you know, it's a terrible thing. Uh, no community should have to go through what Flint has gone through. But I'm also looking at the possibilities of what can come out of this, and I've always believed in Flint. I'm excited about the potential, and you know, we've got to get this fixed. <coughs> but there's a lot to look forward to in the city of Flint, and you're going to have me back because I'm going to be telling the second part of this story, and definitely look forward to that. So uh, yeah, it's, it seems like maybe, um, I don't want to say too little too late, but something that should have been happening a long time ago, and you can tell with the mayor who was sworn in after this was already happening. I'm glad at least some change is happening to to get it better. All right, my voice is going a bit. I'm going to play another song, and then we'll be back. Um, I'm going to do some, uh, read a few things that some friends wrote about my friend Bryn, who passed, and then uh, uh, at 1.30 we'll be getting some news about who's indicted in San Francisco, so that'll be some possibly uplifting news, I guess, depending on who you are. So uh, here we go. One more Klaus Nomi song.
okay. There we go. Um, uh, so I forgot. I didn't forget how, how tough this show was at times, but I guess I can definitely make it happier or decide, you know what? I can, and I will. I'll change it right now. I'll do a more uplifting story before we get to some more depressing things. So this is some good news coming out of Seattle. Uh, a lot of good things are coming out of Seattle. And this is a cool tiny house village opens with electricity to care for Seattle homeless. And this was on the, the good, good, good News Network. Uh, I only found this because a friend posted this. And uh, it'd be cool if we can do something similar here in the Bay Area because we certainly have... There's a lot of homeless folks here, and especially the Super Bowl coming. There's going to be a big protest uh, the first Wednesday of the month uh, around 5 p.m., location to be determined. Uh, the mayor wanted to get rid of homeless folks in preparation for the Super Bowl, which has not been a good deal for the city because we're not making any money. The people who are making the money off are like the big investors, and it's going to kind of disrupt downtown. And we don't even have a football team. They play, play in Santa Clara, so that's... That's a very that's my very terse uh, rant on the Super Bowl, which is coming up, and part of me doesn't want to be here at all in the city while that's happening. There's going to be a protest though, so that's that's good to know. However, some positive news, some good things that are happening in Seattle. Uh, a little village of tiny houses for the homeless is taking shape on a plot of land owned by a Lutheran church in Seattle, Washington. Volunteers gathered over the weekend to build the 14 homes. Each one is insulated and has electricity and oil heat. More importantly, a central building houses uh, restrooms and running water with showers and being with showers being insulated soon. Uh, Lutheran Church of the Good Shepherd put up the land for the village, the first of its kind in Seattle. Each house cost about $2,200 to build, and residents will pay $90 a month for utilities. They will serve as a model for more tiny house villages and uh, as an alternative to uh, Nicholsville, an organized homeless camp in the city. The houses will provide temporary housing until occupants can be housed in permanent homes. The difference is you have electricity and a lock on the door, church member Steve Tucker told KIRO News. The village's first residents start moving in later this week. And they have a video here, and we posted it on the, the Facebook Weekly Review page. So that's a positive story. Now, uh, it's, again, uh, I'm just going to kind of get get through this. So this is uh, uh, an acquaintance or a friend of a friend, uh, Emmett Rugburn, posted this on, on Facebook uh, after our, fr our friend Bryn passed. And this is kind of a, a rant, which I feel is, I agree with it all. And the fact that, that they were able to kind of word it this way. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna going to to share it. It's been going around uh, the Facebook feed. So here we go. Uh, hey, straight people, uh, please read this. <laughs> I know I don't regularly address posts uh, specifically to you on here, but I'm tired and need your help. I'm wondering what you're doing every single day to help keep trans and queer people alive. Brooklyn Queers lost a great light, a trans femme, this week to suicide. She was an amazing performer, writer, and general dynamic. She is not the first person we have lost this year, and I'm hoping she will be the last, but I'm doubtful. The thing is, queers are used to mourning like this. It happens every year, multiple times a year, that we lose someone dear. Overwhelmingly, most of the losses are people who, have t who, have, who take their own lives. 
and our reactions to their broken hearts are this. We say, I love you, you're important to me, please stay, to the ones who are still alive. We hold on to each other as best we can, and we think if we can just wrap our arms a little more tightly that we can slow the machine, and that our dearest, <coughs> and that our dearest loves will stick around. And it probably helps a little bit, but then we lose another person and we start the cycle again. Truthfully, it is not enough. We can't do this alone. The world needs to be different. Being trans, particularly trans-feminine, isn't easy. Being queer isn't easy. The hate and violence and criticism and venom and passive-aggressive comments and weird representation in the media and misogyny and misgendering and binary bathrooms and sometimes ill-fitting clothing and horrible healthcare options and always wondering if you're being treated a particular way because you're trans, it all adds up. It may not be the only reason my queer siblings are leaving this world, but I'm guessing it plays a pretty large role. So how are you helping to keep us alive? Do you know what we're up against? Do you know when a joke is transphobic and do you interrupt it? Do you call people out when they criticize or ridicule the way a trans person looks? Do you give your time or money if you have it to organizations that advocate for trans and queer folks? Do you know how to act as an ally to trans people? Do you support trans health clinics? Do you boycott spaces that exclude trans women? Do you know how to gracefully ask someone their pronouns, and do you do it regularly? Do you tell your other straight friends that they need to be better too? Because you need to. Do some research. Ask some people who aren't trans. But know a few things to help you learn. Try harder. This isn't a singular need, of course. White people, we need to help keep black and brown people alive. People with class privilege, we need to help keep poor folks alive. Able-bodied people, we need to keep disabled people alive. Masculine folks, we need to keep femmes alive. Men, you need to keep women alive. It's part of the setup of capitalism and patriarchy. This feeling that, it only, that if it only involves us, uh, this feeling that it only involves us if it's about us and it contributes to these deaths in real ways. If you are reading this, it means you know me, which means you know at least one trans person. I am a trans person, whether you choose to perceive me that way or not. I'm tired of seeing beautiful people leave. I'm tired of this world being too hard, too fucked up for the amazing trans and queer people I am surrounded by. I'm tired of the exhausted grieving and seeing dear trans and queer friends hold themselves accountable in some ways for these losses, even though they are held hostage by the very same broken system that I'm talking about. Please, we need everyone to be accountable, including you. It's actually a matter of life and death.
right, and uh, welcome back. There's there's more to say. I'm going to take a bit of a break. Uh, we'll be talking more about Bryn, I think, in the coming episodes. Uh, moving along, uh, there's a, a site called uh, 972.mag, and uh, there's an article that was posted recently. This is from January 21st um, by Ido Conrad, and... Uh, these are the anti-occupation activists jailed under gag order. Israeli authorities arrest prominent activists Ezra Navi, Guy Butavia, and Nasser Navaja. At least one of them was barred from meeting with his attorney for days. In court, one activist says his interrogators used materials taken directly from a right-wing organization. Uh, the three anti-occupation activists in Is- Israeli custody uh, whose identities were under gag order until Thursday are Ezra Navi, Guy Butavia, and Nasir Nawaja. The three were arrested over the past week and a half in the wake of a sting operation by Israeli right-wing group Ad Khan, which accused them of collaborating with the Palestinian security services against a Palestinian man who was allegedly trying to sell West Bank land to Israeli settlers. The sting aired on Israel, Israel's primetime investigative show, Livda. All three cases were put under a sweeping gag order, which prevented Plus 272 and the entire Israeli media from reporting their identities or any details of the investigation. Ad Khan, loosely translated to No More, arms its, mem- arms its members with hidden cameras in order to capture high-profile leftists doing or saying incriminating things. This way, Ad Khan's founders claim it can be proven once and for all that Israeli human rights groups actually care very little about human rights. Navi, a, an Israeli Jew of Iraqi descent and an activist with anti-occupation direct action group Ta'ayush, was caught on camera telling an undercover right-wing activist that he often receives calls from Palestinian land brokers who wish to sell property in the West Bank to Israelis, but who cannot do so on the open market because doing so is a criminal offense under Palestinian law. Navi was then secretly filmed pretending to uh, act as a middleman. On On the video, he then explains that he will report the Palestinian land broker to the Palestinian Preventative Security Force, which he says will torture and kill both the seller and middleman. Uh, Livda showed Navi meeting with the middleman to discuss the details of the deal. Navi is later shown discussing, along with Najava, a field worker from Israeli human rights organization, uh, B'Tselem, how to report the land broker to Palestinian security forces. Navi was arrested at Ben-Gurion Airport three days after the program aired, although there were no legal barrier for him from leaving this, the country prior to his arrest. His attorney said he was trying to leave the country because right-wing activists had threatened and even attacked him at his home following the television report. Uh, He has been in custody since the arrest and was prevented from meeting with his attorney for nearly four days. Navi was questioned on suspicion of accessory to manslaughter, conspiracy uh, 
an attempted murder, making contact with a foreign agent, transporting an individual in Israel without a permit, and drug use. The the Jerusalem District Court on Thursday agreed to the police's request to extend Navi's remand by three days. He is scheduled to be released on Sunday. Batavia and Navaja were arrested Tuesday night. Batavia was held for questioning and ordered released after two days. And he was being led, as he was being led into court on Thursday, he suggested that the entire case was built from the work of right-wing organization Ad Khan. The, organi- the interrogators are sitting in front of me with Ad Khan forms. Uh, Batavia said. In Navajia's case, on the other hand, the court declared that it had no jurisdiction, a ruling that had an appeals court held up, that had uh, that an appeals court held up. On Thursday evening, the police handed him over to the army for military trial. Unlike Israeli citizens, Palestinians in the West Bank fall under the jurisdiction of Israel's military courts. Uh, Nasir's attorney uh, Gabby Lasky told Plus 272, there is a general attack on human rights activists in order to stop the legitimacy of speaking out against occupation, adding that she hopes that Israeli authorities are not able to stop the legal activities of human rights activists through the courts. Oh. All right. Um, we'll go here with one more story and then take a break, and then hopefully we'll be back with the uh, infamous news on uh infamous the infamous the the folks in San Francisco who have been uh who uh this really uh uh this is really it's been a heavy episode um uh the folks in San Francisco who are being investigated. So this is a, a post that a friend of mine shared in New York, and I posted it here on the the Comedy Network page here in in, uh, in the Bay Area. And as a in comedy, in, in any scene, there's a lot of there's there can be harassment. I have experienced some before I transitioned. After I transitioned, it doesn't matter. Uh, folks get harassed. It sucks. So here's something. Um, and I'll, there's a link on the Bay Area Comedians Network page. Uh, Gross things that happened to me as a woman in comedy. Anonymous. Uh, Fill out the anonymous form about your experience with sexism, assault, or harassment. You're not alone. The collective experiences will remain anonymous and will be posted in a post-secret format with photos and quotes of text from selected experiences to illustrate the everyday microaggressions, assault, crimes, and traumas we experience as a community. You will not be named and the per... uh, perpetrator will not be mentioned or named in any posts if you have been keeping this experience private and are looking for help we encourage you to contact the proper authorities and or we can also put you in touch with resources uh, email info at womenincomedy.org and the and it's just a, it's a very brief questionnaire it asks where this happened um and who um who how are you acquainted with this person and then there's um what did they perpetrator harass or say or do to you and then also quotes or gross things that they said uh to you via text email or in person that you wanted to share and then they ask if you've told anyone about it and if that person helped you or not and then anything else you wanted to share and you can put in your city and your age so um i've known quite a few folks in co- even just uh, both in new york here in san francisco uh there's there's definitely harassment. I've heard about a lot of harassment as well. So I'm glad that this is uh, 
uh, this forum is, is out there to collect more information and so folks feel less alone and, and this can start being it can start uh, uh, start speaking up about it so I did want to talk a little bit about Brynn and some folks wrote some pieces on, on her as well and I'm still it still feels really relatively new and I'm glad there was that other piece t to read which kind of encapsulates how a lot of us feel where this is like a, a common thing I lost a good friend of mine named Sunny uh, last year um, to suicide and that was really heartbreaking and I knew Sunny a little bit better than I knew Bryn and it was just really hard and uh, when I first met Bryn I didn't I didn't know she was trans and it was it was 2008 and I was just beginning my I guess decide I was beginning that it's it's difficult to find words to talk about transition because it's difficult for a lot of people and it's difficult to describe certainly and one's perspectives change over time certainly but i remember talking to her and i was going through a really tough time right at the beginning and uh she was there and she just listened and i'm so so grateful for that and uh, again there's just i find i find myself not having the words so i'm grateful that a lot of folks have shared um, that a lot of people have shared um, their their stories and memories of her, and I'm still grieving in a way. And it's interesting to I've been you know I've been telling people in person, um, but I haven't posted much online aside from sharing a few people's things. And part of that has to do with taking a break from Facebook and also just finding other ways to grieve and just to be in this world that are not necessarily through social media because at, sometimes it can be helpful and other times I'd rather, if I haven't posted for a while, I'd rather save up that information and that life experience and use that in person and talk to someone about it in person than to put it out there. And then also just with the surveillance and all that, uh, the government doesn't need to know what's going on in my life. My friends do, but I don't need to necessarily share that online so I, I you know welcome folks to continue to talk about things in daily life so got there's um also this awesome thing that's going to be happening here <laughs> talk about not having a segue at all but um there's a show at mutiny radio there was a benefit for syrian refugees um back in in the fall that was great and i met someone who was part of that named uh serena zabrinsky zarina zabrinsky Zarina Zabrisky, and um, Zarina is going to be hosting a conversation with Pussy Riot um, here in San Francisco on February 10th at the Warfield, and there's a postcard here, it's in conversation, uh, it's Pussy Riot in conversation, that's all it says. It's at the Warfield, it's February 10th, we'll be talking more about that. Oh, maybe we'll have her on the show and she can talk about that um, uh, as that approaches, that'll be great. Um, so looking forward to going to that event and hearing about that, and perhaps that will inspire some folks here in the Bay and in the States to do some more political activism as well, because I think Pussy Rides, they're, they're pretty awesome at how outspoken and brave they've been with their actions. So uh, it's about 1.22 right now. I'm going to do a little bit of an extended music break, and the instrumental piece we heard before was from band I was just introduced to called uh, L107, instrumental, it's great, and I, sometimes I do try to have like political songs here on the show. And sometimes it's great just to have instrumental songs, certainly. Um, so I'm going to play some more from them. And um, hopefully when, by the time we're back, um, we'll have that great information about who's in trouble. Uh, some schadenfreude, certainly, coming up for me. Uh, but then also, uh, for those of us who love the city, and there's a lot of us who do, uh, uh, folks who can be, you know, it's people being held accountable. We like that. We like that here. So here's some more from L107, and we'll be back in, uh, in a little bit.
is Roman, back here with the Weekly Review. Still waiting on news of the uh, corruption allegations and who will be charged. So we're going to keep playing music, and we'll be here until just a bit before 2, when uh, Val will come in with, Global Val will come in with Women's Magazine, followed by Common Thread Collective. Uh, Tonight there is uh, the Queer Open Mic happening at our Times Bookstore on 24th Street at 7.30. And as mentioned before, there is the... Action in solidarity with trans prisoners at El Rio tonight at 6 p.m. So hope to see everyone there. And we'll be back as soon as we hear some news about what's happening downtown.
case has been thoroughly investigated by the San Francisco District Attorney's Office and the City Attorney's Office and resulted in the following charges. Concerning Mr. Jackson, there are 12 counts in total, six felony counts, four counts of bribery, one count of money laundering, and one grand theft of public money. There is also six misdemeanor counts of campaign finance fraud. The exposure for Mr. Jackson is 11 years and four months in state prison. His bail is $208,000. Concerning Missoula May Jones, there are five felony counts in total, four counts of bribery, and one count of money laundering. Exposure for Ms. Jones is seven years and eight months in state prison. Her bail is set at $175,000. Concerning Ms. Nasley Mohire, she has five felony counts in total, four counts of bribery, one count of money laundering. Her exposure is seven years and eight months in state prison. Her bail is also $175,000. Unfortunately, we cannot get into the details. Uh, there is a federal protective order concerning this investigation, and that is also part of the estate case. Uh, therefore, we're limited in what we can say to you other than the information that is being provided. I'd like to turn it over now to Mr. Herrera to say a few words, and then uh, Special Agent uh, uh, Johnson will also speak. And then, uh, if you have any questions that are not within the protective order, we'll try to answer as best we can. If not, we will be able to answer. Thanks. Uh, thank you, uh, District Attorney Gascon. Uh, I just want to say that to echo the sentiments and the statements of the District Attorney, that uh, both he and I take uh, public integrity and public trust extremely seriously. And the fact that we have conducted this uh, investigation jointly, I think speaks volumes to how serious we view the public trust. The District Attorney uh, and his people have done an outstanding job and we look forward to working with them in the future as this uh, investigation continues and develops. And to Special Agent in Charge um, Johnson, I just want to thank you uh, on behalf of the City Attorney's Office for federal leadership uh, and the development and investigation that you have done. And we look forward to uh, uh, working alongside you. And I know that you speak for the entirety of the federal government when uh, you talk about how important public integrity and trust is. So uh, thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to taking your questions. It does not matter if the corruption of the public's trust and the law either federal or state, we will find you and we will stop you. Okay. Can you tell us who you've interviewed or talked to as part of the investigation? No, we cannot. Yeah. Can you tell us if it, anyone in the mayor's office was spoken to? <coughs> we cannot go into the details again. Uh, and you know, normally we're much more expansive about the information that we provide when we file cases here. This case was under a federal protection order. Uh, part of that case that was brought over to the state level also is under a... We, we cannot get into the details, but all I can tell you is that we have been investigating uh, irregularities in local government for questions. Can you give us any sort of timeline? As to when this investigation will end? Yeah. It's hard to tell. We're, you know, the, this particular case will proceed, additional, the investigation continues, and we, it will take us to wherever the facts But I mean, any sort of timeline when you start it? I know that you say you can't get into this it's been, it's been some time. It's been more than months. Have arrested me? Arrest uh, has not been made. Uh, three individuals that are being charged will be given an opportunity to turn themselves in. We do not 
All right, so that was some of the live stream. So we have the, the names here of the folks will be charged. Um, and that is uh, Nasli Mahajer, Zula Jones, and Keith Jackson. And uh, they were charged with felony, bribery, and money laundering. And they kind of lead up to Ed Lee, although Ed Lee wasn't named. So um, there's a, on Facebook, there's a vote one, two, three to replace Ed Lee page, uh, which uh, Amy Farrah Weiss and Francisco Herrera and Stuart Shuffman who are all guests on the show. Um, people still contribute to this. So if you live in the Bay Area and you're still curious and want to find ways to make things a little bit better there's a it's a discussion board here on on facebook so uh a friend of mine had posted this that this was happening and there are updates here uh and led to the the live stream and so some folks are saying that this is disappointing and other folks are saying that lee must have paid off the right people because he is not mentioned in this uh in, in this and I wonder how much you know further it, w it will go because he has been he's kind of at the top of it so we're wondering folks are wondering uh, how much further this will go so people were upset that it wasn't uh, Ron Conway uh, as well so we'll see where this leads I'm not sure if this will be the end of it or if this will lead to more investigation um, and I guess it's it doesn't surprise me in a way that uh that uh, it's, you know, there's certain people who kind of take uh, take the fall, and not that people aren't necessarily implicated in it, but it's uh, the folks at the top are very seldom the ones who, uh, who are the ones who, who get arrested because they, they have power and, and influence and money, and they can kind of tell other people to take the fall for them. So it'll be curious to see where this goes, and maybe by, by next week we'll have some more uh, information. So, yep, that was a little bit anticlimactic, uh, but uh, I guess, you know, folks in positions of, of power being held accountable for their their bribery or their money, money laundering, that says something. Uh, and they have the press release uh, photographed here on the uh, vote, for, uh, vote 1, 2, 3 to replace Ed Lee page as well. So with that note, uh, no no big news. Well, I guess it's, it just depends on how you look at it, certainly. So we'll see what, what happens next. I'm going to refresh once more, make sure there's no more uh, additional news in this case to be reported, and then I'll play some music, and we'll be, we'll be done until next week. And, uh, yep, that seems to be just about it. So thanks, everybody, for uh, uh, listening and... Uh, there's also some ideas that um, the folks who were uh, arrested will be are considered like small fish, and then the big fish would be Ed Lee and, and Jerry Brown, and perhaps 
those folks speak up, the the mayor and the governor will be named, which is pretty big news. Who knows? Who knows what will happen? We'll see. So until then, have a have a good week and be nice to people and speak up for those who yeah, speak up for everybody. Do it. And I'll end on a Klaus Newby song. What should we listen to? What should we listen to? Um, how about the, the, the Know Me chant? I think that's a good one. All right. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll be back next week. What is CopWatch? CopWatch is a network of activist organizations in the United States and Canada that observe and document police activity while looking for signs of police misconduct and police brutality. Their database is a permanent searchable repository of complaints filed against police officers at copwatch.org. You can report an incident for permanent inclusion in their database at copwatch.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Muni Radio in San Francisco. FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, is dedicated to defending individual rights in higher education. Founded in 1999, this nonprofit group focuses on civil liberties in academia and the United States. Its goal is to defend and sustain individual rights at America's colleges and universities, including the right to freedom of speech, legal equality, due process, religious liberty, and sanctity of conscience, the essential qualities of individual liberty and dignity. You can find out more or support this group at thefire.org. This public service announcement has been brought to you by your friends at Muni Radio.
Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Lions and tigers and bears and elephants and monkeys and hundreds of other animals are just waiting to get you at the San Francisco Zoo. But don't worry, Dorothy, these animals are fun. So the next time the kids complain that they've got nothing to do, pack them up and follow the yellow brick road to the San Francisco Zoo. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Do you or someone you know have epilepsy and need support? The Epilepsy Foundation of Northern California has been providing services to families affected by epilepsy since 1953. They are dedicated to serving the nearly 140,000 people with epilepsy in our region and seek to ensure that people with seizures are able to participate in all of life's experiences. To find out more, visit the Epilepsy Foundation of Northern California at epilepsynorcal.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Save our democracy. We must reverse Citizens United, restore our democracy, and save the republic. Join the fight for free and fair elections in America. Wolf Pack is the pack to end all packs, and they're working for a constitutional amendment to get money and legalized bribery out of politics, but they need your help. Become a member, volunteer your time, and sign your petition at wolf-pack.com. Grid Alternatives is a nonprofit organization and licensed solar installer working throughout California to empower communities in need by installing solar panels on low-income housing. They use a volunteer installation model that includes community volunteers, job trainees, and the homeowners themselves in a barn-raising effort to make solar accessible to the communities who need it most. For more information, visit gridalternatives.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Oh, man. Do you miss a Mutiny Radio show from your favorite DJ? Did you find out about a guest interviewed on Mutiny Radio a day too late? Are you wishing that you had a time-traveling DeLorean to listen to those shows again? Don't you fret. Simply go to mutinyradio.org and listen to our podcast. Yes, it's that easy. Click on the podcast button and find your favorite show. Heck, click a variety of podcasts for a sample of all of our great programming here at Mutiny Radio. And don't forget to listen to us live on iTunes Radio under the Eclectic Show. The Muscular Dystrophy Association is the world's leading nonprofit health agency dedicated to finding treatments and cures for muscular dystrophy, a mitotrophic lateral sclerosis, and other neuromuscular diseases. They do so by funding worldwide research, providing comprehensive healthcare services, and support to MDA families nationwide, and by rallying communities to fight back through advocacy, fundraising, and local engagement. It's special work powered by special people who give generously. Visit mda.org for more information. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Sunday Streets are events that encourage recreation, community activities, and fun in San Francisco. Sunday Streets closes city streets to automobile traffic and opens them to people for several hours on various Sundays throughout the year. So participants can enjoy a large, temporary public space where they can bike, walk, run, dance, do yoga, or any other physical activity. Nonprofit and health organizations offer free activities and share information about their services during the event. 
Visit sundaystreetssf.org for more information. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. The National Lawyers Guild is dedicated to the need for basic change in the structure of our political and economic systems. They seek to unite lawyers, law students, legal workers, and jailhouse lawyers of America. Thick clouds, steam rising, hissing stone and sweat lunch fire.
Welcome to the Weekly Review. It is November 6th, 2015, and here to bring you the news, which today will hopefully be a little bit less depressing, but we're still going to play some music, which may be depressing. Uh, it was just election day here earlier this week, and uh, things didn't quite go so well here in San Francisco as we would have hoped. There were some, some positive things, though, and... Uh, so there's always a lot of depressing things going on and frustrating and enraging things that have been going on for quite a long time here. And uh, it's great to report on that just to bear witness to what's going on. And there's also positive things that happen. Now, granted, I've, I've noticed on the show and folks, if, you know, if you pay attention, uh, sometimes these, these happy news stories or surprisingly good news stories uh, only happen when there is preventative measures or some, someone's doing something negative and it, and it stopped. And we celebrate that. Or something that should have al always been accessible or available, for instance, I don't know, people wanting to marry each other who want to, or access to cannabis or other medications. Uh, things that should have always been available to people that were not, and then now they are. So that's something positive, even though if, you know, if a lot of us had our way, these things would have never been prohibited in the first place. However, it's really important to celebrate these these milestones and these victories. Um, someone might, might say that they're minor, and yeah, there's so many, there's so much going on, there's so many struggles going on. And uh, there are a lot of people, though, doing a lot of good work, so it's important to recognize that and to celebrate when good things happen or when bad things don't happen. I think that's just as, just as great. And I know depression's been going around for a lot of folks, myself included, so wanted to make sure that uh, we recognize the positive things that are happening and, the, and things that are ways in which people are working to make things a little bit better and prevent bad things from happening. So I'll go into the first story, and usually I like to start off with the more local things first. However, this one is about the environment, and that's it's uh, that affects absolutely everybody. So I wanted to talk about that first. And this comes from Mother, Mother Jones. And uh, here's what you need to know about President Obama's decision to reject the Keystone XL pipeline. Now, a lot of folks have been working on this for quite a long time, and it's great that... Uh, this is going to, they're going to put a stop to this right now. So this is from Mother Jones, and the author of the article is Tim McDonnell, and this came out uh, today. Uh, in this year's biggest victory for environmentalists, and I would add to that everyone who lives on planet Earth, because uh, we've got to protect this planet, which we've polluted, uh, Anyway, uh, President Barack Obama announced Friday that he will reject an application from Canadian company TransCanada, which I think is a disgrace to everything known as trans, uh, to construct the Keystone XL pipeline. The pipeline, which would allow crude oil from Canada's oil sands to reach ports and refineries in the U.S., has been a major controversy for Obama ever since he took office. The White House spent years deliberating on the issue. During that time, environmental groups accused Obama of not backing up his rhetoric on climate change with real action, and Republicans in Congress accused him of blocking a job-creating infrastructure project. In his announcement today, the president said the State Department's analysis had shown the pipeline would not significantly benefit the U.S. economy. I, I would say that the main issue should be destroying the earth. That should be our main concern, because we... Who cares about the economy if we don't have a place to live? Anyway, uh, the State Department has, de has decided that the Keystone XL pipeline would not serve the national interests of the United States. I agree with that decision, Obama said. The timing of the announcement is significant as it comes just weeks before the beginning of major international climate negotiations in Paris. 
Obama's decision will reverberate with other countries and sends a strong message that the United States is serious about taking action to stop climate change, <laughs> said Jennifer Morgan, director of the Global Climate Program at the World Resources Institute. Obama said that pipeline had been given an inf overinflated role in the political discourse by both its supporters and detractors. Still, he framed his decision as a key element of his climate legacy. America is now a global leader when it comes to taking serious action to fight climate change, he said. Today, we continue to lead by example. Huh. So that is something positive, right? Uh, that's good. Just saying no, saying no to, to bad things. I think that's very, very important. Um, so moving along, we will get to the election. And there, there was, uh, 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 there, there's a lot to say about it, certainly. And I'm definitely of the, I do subscribe to, there's, there, there is the, a lot of conflicting uh, ideas about elections, certainly. There is the idea that if, uh, if voting changed anything, they would make it illegal. And there's also the idea that many people have had fought and were beaten and uh, killed for just trying to be able to get the opportunity to vote. So there's knowing the, the struggle and the history behind that. And also voter suppression, which is still happening in this country, and having the opportunity to vote, which is not a, which is not an option for people, um, depending on where people live and who people are. So I feel very conflicted about it and uh, very much wanting the systems that are in place to change and to create something new. And then also, I have a lot of respect for folks who do decide to work within the system to make it better, who people who have good ideas and are really um, really working for the for the good of the, the greater good for people who like are like that and there are folks like that out there who throw their hat in the ring who work tirelessly to do that i I commend them so I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about it certainly, and uh, I was still kind of down on Wednesday after the election uh, the we had three of the candidates who were running for mayor. We had Amy Farrah Weiss, Francisco Herrera, and Stuart Shuffman on the program a few months ago. And they put out, considering there were folks who did not have much of a following um, before the election, and they were not folks within the current uh, political spectrum, I would say, uh, they did a kick-ass job. They went out and they worked really hard and they got a shit ton of votes considering they don't have the same kind of connections and capital that uh, Ed Lee has. So they, they did give him a run for their money, for his money, even though he ended up, w they're still counting the votes. So there's always that, you never know, because they got, got until today for them to count all the votes because people were able to send in their ballots. However, uh, they put up a really strong fight, and I, not just they, but all the folks who are out there getting the word out. Um, it was a really a, quite a, a coalition of folks, and there's a, a page on Facebook called 123 Replace Ed Lee, and that's continued to be a, a board to discuss ways in which to hold the mayor and Ron Conway and all those folks accountable for what they've done to the city. So this article comes from 48 Hills, and a big thing is that this SF Chronicle and SF Weekly were pretty much paid to say that, especially the Chronicle, was paid to say that Ed Lee was running unopposed, which is a fucking lie. If you're a journalist, I mean, Jesus, you know, tell the truth. However, they, um, Amy Farrah talked to the people at, at SF Weekly, and they admitted, oh, yeah, well, you kind of get what you pay for in elections, and I guess with a, and a lot of things in this world. And if you have connections to, to media, they're going to they're gonna spin things a certain way and even lie about 